WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. It is Sunday, January 28th, 2024. I am Rob Jerisline, Managing Editor of a publication called Outdoor News. I'm very excited to be with you here for the next hour. We've, we're going to talk lots of outdoor topics, uh, live and local, as they say. Uh, we will have Jeremy Smith from Linder Media join us here in a little bit. Uh, Jeremy, really an up-and-comer, I think, on, and he's already arrived, but he's, he's uh, big time on the uh, state fishing scene, national fishing scene. We're going to talk to him a little bit about probably some Minnesota-specific outdoor fishing topics, as well as maybe recap that DNR roundtable that was two Fridays ago. I talked about that event a little bit last week on this broadcast, but uh, Jeremy might bring some other perspective to it. At the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk with a gentleman named Dan Steele. Uh, if you read Outdoor News, you'll see on the front cover we had a great photo of Dan uh, holding a massive, almost 40-inch lake trout that he caught in a uh, northeastern Minnesota lake outside the Boundary Waters. Uh, there are two openers for uh, for fishing uh, lake trout in the in that region. One outside the Boundary Waters, one in, inside, and I think the I think the outside date comes later, right? The the regular BWCA opener is Jan one, and then it's usually about around the fifteenth. I think it was the thirteenth this year that the opener for lakes outside uh, the wilderness kicked off. And on that opening day, he caught this huge fish. We're going to talk to him a little bit about fishing for lake trout in the Northeast, a part of the state where you usually, even in a winter like this, have pretty darn good ice conditions. Uh, it goes without saying, this is some of the craziest uh, January weather I think almost anybody listening has ever seen. Uh, if you're like me, you're seeing ponds in the metro area opening up. Uh, it goes without saying that uh, <sighs> just be so careful out there, uh, especially uh, statewide. I mean, around the state we've got... We've got bizarre ice conditions, and it's it's going to be strange again this week. With um, you know, if you look at your uh, your weather forecast, temperatures getting up into the 40s. So again, we've talked a lot about that this winter. I want to urge everybody to be careful, and if they have an ice report and would like to check in, uh, give us a call six five one four six one ninety two twenty six. Uh, so a couple of guests. Um, I also have a lot of headlines here that I would like to uh, talk about. We've got. Uh, We've got Groundhog Day. You believe that? This is the last Sunday in January already. So we got Groundhog Day coming up uh, at the end of the week, Friday, this Friday, February 2nd. Uh, groundhogs. You, you, I don't know if you ever think about groundhogs. They're, they're basically a giant squirrel. They're a giant ground squirrel. Uh, they're in the marmot family, I guess. Uh, I've done some backpacking out west in uh, in a couple of mountainous uh, national parks and up into Canada and Alaska, and you see these marmots, which kind of they look very similar to a groundhog. They're a little bolder, it seems like, uh, they, probably because they don't see a whole lot of people. There's, you know, there's parts of the country, especially out east, I think they hunt. They, they do some hunting for woodchucks, for groundhogs, uh, which, you know, hey, if they're just a giant squirrel, there's people here that, that hunt squirrel. Why not uh, shoot a big one, right? And there's probably even a little more meat on them. I think Kentucky, real, uh, they... they there's a kind of a pretty stronger tradition for hunting groundhogs out there. Not something I've ever participated in. I, I remember when I was a kid, there was a little, uh, there was a hunter safety video that uh, included a guy uh, hunting for woodchucks. And I remember as a kid in the 80s, we all chuckled at that. We thought, who who does that? But uh, there are parts of the country where they hunt groundhogs. But anyway, we will see if uh, what Punxsutawney Phil or any other, well, isn't there one in Wisconsin, Jimmy the Groundhog down in Sun Prairie? We'll see if those guys see their shadow and what that means for this winter, which has already kind of been a non-event. I mentioned uh, this gentleman 
who took the big lake trout outside the uh, the boundary waters. And there's a big deadline or an application period that opens this Wednesday, January 31st. If you uh, are interested in getting a boundary waters permit for this season, for this uh, the, the season, you know, when you need a permit runs what? I think it's May 1st to September 30th. That's the quota season. Honestly, lots of times I like to go after the quota season, especially with these long, warm falls we've had. Uh, if you go after, you go into October, the mosquitoes are usually down. You don't need to mess around getting a permit. There's an unlimited number of permits. There's fewer people up there. So honestly, this uh, this application quota season doesn't mean as much to me as it used to. But for most folks, if you want to go to the Boundary Waters, you know, during you know, let's let's face it, during the height of the uh, the vacation season, five months out of the year, May one to September thirtieth, you need to get that permit, and that application period opens at nine a.m. this Wednesday, January thirty first. You want to go to recreation.gov if that is if that is something you would like to uh, pursue. I've I've done a lot of Boundary Waters trips in my time. Not as not as many as as other folks. We've had like Ron Husvet and and some other people on the show and talked about it. But I've had had some great memories taking my kids up there when they were small. Uh, last year, my oldest son took his girlfriend up there for several days. I was really proud of him. He's taken some buddies from college also, and I that. I don't know. I felt like I did something right as a parent when my son, uh, you know, planned and organized and led his own boundary waters trips as a young adult. And uh, I, I look back at those trips. We used to go as a family. We'd get up. <clears throat> you know, I, I was I was still a working stiff, but I, I so I didn't have a ton of vacation time. And we would we'd load up the night before, and then we'd hit the road at like. 2 a.m. I'd, I'd get the family up, <laughs> and we'd load in, in our, you know, the family minivan, and they'd all sleep while I drove to Ely, and they'd all wake up about the time we rolled into Ely at 7 a.m. just in time to pick up the permit. And I remember one year we left here; it was it was an August trip. We left, and it was like hot and humid at 2 a.m. Right? It was one of those kind of hot summer nights when it was probably 70 degrees at 2 a.m. And, and humidity, and we got up there, and, and it was just like a different world. And I remember you know, my, my wife hopped out. We, we were going to gas up. And she said, where have you taken me? It was like such a different world. The temperature had dropped 20 degrees. The humidity had probably dropped 40%. And, you know, the sky looked like autumn. And we just had a glorious three, four days uh, up there with, with our boys when they were young. And, and later my daughter was born. We took her up there, too. Uh, and... A lot of great memories. If that's something you haven't done, it's a lot of work to take kids into the Boundary Waters, no doubt about it. Uh, and, I, and I would argue that getting a permit, finding a permit, is harder than it was 10, 15 years ago when I, I did that with my kids. You can, still, you, know, you can still find a permit somewhere kind of off the cuff last minute. You can still do that. But if you're listening out there and it's something you might want to try, I would encourage you to research it. Go to, go to recreation.gov. There's a ton of other sites where you can research uh, entry points, but recreation.gov is where you're going to want to sign up for that permit. And uh, like I say, that permit period opens this Wednesday, Jan 31 at 9 a.m. With that, I think I will grab a break. We will return. We're going to talk with Jeremy Smith from Linear Media. Lots to talk about with him on the fishing scene. So don't go away. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830, Sunday, January 28th, 2024. We're here till the top of the hour. 
I've got a guest I'm really excited to chat about, chat with here on the program. We have not had him with us before. His name is Jeremy Smith. He hails from Lindner Media out of uh, the Brainerd Lakes area, and uh, he joins us now. I saw Jeremy just last uh, two Fridays ago at the DNR Roundtable in Bloomington. I thought we'd debrief on that and some other topics. Jeremy, you with me. How you doing, man? Hey, Rob. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. It was good to see you at the... Um, at the round table, there's a lot of, uh, how do I put it? Let's see. I've, I've been going to this round table a lot of years, like 25 years. There's a lot of kind of old guys there, and it's nice to see some young, younger folks like you who are engaged in the industry, smart folks uh, who, are, who are movers and shakers. We need that new blood. So thank you for carving out the time to get to that event, Jeremy. Well, it's great uh, great to go there. I've not been to as many events uh, as you have, and you know, I'll, I'll say, first of all, I think it's it's a great deal that our state does have that event for some interface with the agency and the, and the stakeholders. And, and, of course, this year was a little different than most years, as, as you know. But uh, so, like, a few of the topics, if you're into hook and bullet, were a bit broad for, uh, you know, for us that are really into fisheries or wildlife issues. But, you know, at the same time, it's great to network, see, like you said, a lot of people that have – uh, serious, uh, seriously concerned about uh, conservation issues and are willing to put their time in to make, hopefully, things better for Minnesotans. Yeah, I talked about this a little bit last week, and there's some folks saying, you know, is, should we keep doing the roundtable? I think Dennis Anderson, as Colin pointed out, it costs $60,000 a year, uh, apparently, for the DNR to hold it. I, I pointed out in my column that uh, well, some of the proof in the pudding for me and why I think it's a worthwhile event is that any time I talk to someone from another state who comes to the event, either, either as a guest speaker or for some other reason, they're always, they always stop me and say, this is a great event. I wish we had this in our state. And they say that even in years when they're not, we're not real thrilled about the agenda, which, again, this year, there were parts of the agenda that were good. I, I think the morning goes on too long. Uh, they devote too much time to kind of this large group plan area when I think that it would be better spent. They could do What, what did they spend, Jeremy? A, a couple hours in that, that big morning group kind of talking climate change over and over and over. I, I'd have cut that in half and probably spent – the back half of that time in some small group, again, drilling into, into some specific topics. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, the, the, the folks that are there, uh, many of them do have very specific interests. And, uh, uh, you know, this year kind of one of the tough parts was there wasn't a lot of stakeholder input and in what the agenda should be. I mean, there, there was right. in some regards, but we talked about uh, technology. That was one of the afternoon sessions. It was repeated twice. And that overlapped with both wildlife and fisheries. And as you know, that topic, uh, uh, I mean, that's just too, too broad. There's a lot of issues that both the hunting and the fishing side want to talk about. Not that there's necessarily answers to them right now, but we want to get that discussion going uh, because it could have some serious impacts on our resources in the future. You were one of the panelists on that technology panel, and I appreciated you know, how clear you were. I mean, you stood up and really laid it out. Uh, you said, hey, the, you know, we're talking about forward-facing sonar, some of these other things affecting fisheries. And you made a strong point that you know, this is real. We're afraid this is going to have impacts on our fish populations, and we need to be doing some research and understanding it and you know, potentially talking about regulations to um, offset some of the harvest that might occur as a result of this technology. Is that, is that a, a fair summary of what, what you had to say, Jeremy? I don't want to mischaracterize you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, advocating for regulations at this point in time. I'm really saying that, hey, 
we need to be aware of this. We need to know what we got. So we've got some comparison to say, Hey, we may be, we may be losing this stuff. And there isn't, you know, we used to have at this event, uh, researchers present us with all the things that are going on in fisheries. So what, I mean, what is happening in research right now? That's a question I've got on the fishery side. Are we, are we looking at, are we really looking at our fish populations and trying to identify what uh, could be, could be happening there. And so, yeah, I, I am concerned about, uh, what this could do, and particularly, I brought this up with muskies. Um, you know, there are not a ton of Minnesota's population fishes for them, but they are, in my opinion, one of the the coolest fish that swims in fresh water. They're relatively rare; they get big, and uh, we don't. Minnesota doesn't have a management plan for them. It was due in 2020. We're four years later, and there still isn't any action plan on this. And these are fish that. Uh, uh, there, there are very few of them. Our stocking numbers aren't what they used to be, and they could be certainly very negatively impacted by forward-facing sonar. So we got to get ahead of this. We, I mean, we need a management plan. We're late on that. We need to understand what the impact of this could be on fisheries, particularly how they're, uh, a lot of the pressure is now shifting to our native fisheries as opposed to the stock fisheries that the DNR created that got so many anglers involved in muskie fishing. So that's a, a big concern for me. Yeah, without question. I mean, you read Outdoor News. We publish a lot of reader shots, and I'm, I'm getting a lot of photos of, from people who I know <laughs> are not hardcore muskie anglers, but they're, they're out there with forward-facing sonar. They're finding these fish. They're catching them. They're releasing them, and that's good. But, I mean, even catch and release on fish during the heat of summer, it's it's tough on them. And we could see some more mortality of this small, fairly fragile fishery, uh, you know, if we're not careful. In my column this week, Jeremy, I, I said that the vibe I'm getting from the DNR, frankly, even after that event, even after that technology panel, is that I'm not sensing a whole lot of urgency from the agency on this, that they necessarily want to go wading into it. My sense is they think it's kind of controversial. Uh, am I being too harsh on them? Do you, do you think that's, again, do you think that's a fair characterization? Would you like to see uh, a little more sense of urgency from the DNR on this topic? Well, that that is my sense as well, and I, I will also point this out that um, they did start a, a work group on technology, which I'm I'm sitting on right now. So there's one meeting with that work group. The stakeholder, uh, the number of stakeholders is only three, myself included. So I did not feel that that was a good representation of the angling community. So it looks like they'll continue to to broaden that. So at least it's on their radar. But at the you know, and and I think a lot of the guys in the Area offices are, are a little bit more in tune with what's happening, but as mm-hmm. you seem to climb up the ladder, uh, it, it uh, just seems to be like, yeah, 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 here's another, you know, the Vexlar, it's the end of things. But, I mean, there's, we have a lot of amazing technology, and to me it's the compounding effect of all of that technology, the, the way information travels, the comfort that you can be in to experience the outdoors right now. Uh, you know, it's, to me, it, it's, it, it could have some serious implications. Yeah, it, it, it all adds up for and the species I think we're most worried about again are muskies as well as you know big panfish right crappies in the winter which uh, if we could transition a little bit crappies maybe getting a little bit of a break this winter in Minnesota given the ice conditions. Yeah, it doesn't seem you know I, I'm in Brainerd here and I mean the last number of years we've talked about how it seems uh, we're our office is just right off 371 you see more wheelhouses coming north in the winter than you do and see boats coming through in the summer. And this year there hasn't been that many wheelhouses moving through. We don't have great ice conditions. The weather of course is great, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the thing with uh, panfish in the winter, uh, they tend to go to relatively 
predictable locations and with this technology, they're a lot easier to find. And finding fish is usually the most difficult part of catching them. And when they're, you know, they don't always bite, you know, I, I will give them that. Fish can be keen, but um, it's, a lot, it's a way, way easier to find fish today than it, than it has been ever before. You listen to WCCO Outdoors. I'm Rob Jerislein. We are chatting with Jeremy Smith from Lindner Media. Uh, you know, Jeremy, just uh, real quick, how did you break into the uh, the fishing industry? There might be folks out there listening, young folks, saying, wow, this guy sounds like a fascinating individual with a great job working for the Linders uh, and, and fishing for a living, right? I, I know it's a little yeah. more complex than that. Tell us real quick, how did you, uh, you get into the fishing industry? I just love fishing, and, and that's, that was been my passion, you know, since I was a little kid. I've, I've just had a natural curiosity for fish and fishing, and and, uh, you know, through high school and into college, I just was trying to get my foot in the door and, and uh, trying to get a, a decent education and, and uh, making, trying to do some networking along the way. And I ended up where I, where I am today, but really, you know, passion and, and staying focused on what I wanted to do landed me where I'm at. So it's a, it's a great, great uh, career path to be on. And, and there are a lot of great people within the industry. And, and so, yeah, here, here we are today. And you did some guiding. Tell me if I'm wrong. You were guiding even as a as a teenager, weren't you? At at a resort, was it in northern Minnesota? Well, kind of. Yeah, when I was uh, um, in college, um, I was there's a there's a place called the Mule Lake Store. They're out of they're closed now. But when I was in college, I used to do some guide trips out of there, and I was a server at ten on ten mile there. So I was fishing Leech and uh, Little Boy and Inguadona and Wabado and some of the lakes in that area. Mm. So kind of waiting tables and being a fishing guide in college. It was, oh, it was, the, it was the life. Those days are, are gone now, but that was a, that was a fun place to be. When I, was I bet. That. Yeah. No, I, I look back on, on similar days where I wasn't making much money, but man, I was, I was really in the thick of it, uh, enjoying uh, all aspects of the great outdoors, enjoying people too. And uh, it, it changes as you do move up the ladder. Uh, hey, Folks might be listening and saying, what, you know, I bet this guy knows what's going on with the ice fishing out there. Tell us, are, are you, you folks do a lot of filming on the ice. How are you approaching that right now, given these ice conditions? Is there, is there fishable ice in, in your area, or is are you just checking everything, every, every step you take out on the ice, given the, the just bizarre weather we're having? Yeah, I would still be cautious. You know, there, there's good, you know, good ice around. And, you know, there are some places around here where people are driving trucks. You know, I, I heard somebody was out this week. They went to a spot on, you know, they're fishing Gull Lake, one of the bigger lakes in the Brainerd Lakes area. And they, they found a lot of like 12 inch, but they, they found one spot that had six. So um, I think you're pretty much safe anywhere if you're on a snowmobile or ATV at this point in time. Well, I should say today, the weather's supposed to get really warm this week, but uh, I would be real nervous about vehicle traffic. So Mm-hmm. Smaller lakes all seem to be in that. Well, we were on one this last week that had about 10 inches. It was only about a 60-acre lake near Longville, and there was only about 10 inches. So I would be cautious about just deciding you're going to drive your truck out wherever or pull a wheelhouse out. Just uh, use use some caution for sure. Uh, we should point out that the Big Brainer JC's event in your area, which is a week from yesterday, February 3rd, they've transitioned to a hybrid model uh, where I, I guess folks can fish multiple lakes. I uh, go to icefishing.org if you want more details, but I got to think a lot of people in Brainerd are talking about that, Jeremy. Yeah, it's kind of a, a, a bummer, you know, it does bring a lot of dollars to the community. And I think the people, uh, there will still be participation, but it's that, you know, it's the camaraderie of an event like that, right? There you just see all kinds of characters and all kinds of stuff happening. 
out on the ice. So that's unfortunate that it didn't, that it didn't happen. A big, obviously, a big fundraiser and a lot of businesses and a lot of people just look forward to that every every year. So, yeah, things are things are certainly changing. There's no doubt about it. So, hopefully, you know, we get through this winter and next year we'll be back on track. I want to, before we let you go, uh, Jeremy, I want to point out you're a frequent contributor to Outdoor News. If folks want to read more about uh, some of your thoughts, uh, you, you wrote about the barrel trauma study involving uh, crappies last winter in Outdoor News first. You had it there, and, and uh, so that's a topic that I know you've talked about a lot. It looks like, what, this Thursday, February 1st, you're going to be a guest speaker with uh, the T.C. Walleyes group out of, Blo- out of Bloomington. Is that right? I, I totally forgotten about that. I was just looking through the paper and it's like, hey, we should mention that. That's a great little club, and uh, they get some great speakers. So if folks want to uh, meet you in person, that'd probably be a good place to do it, huh? Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So the Twin Cities chapter of Walleyes Unlimited is going to be doing that. And we're going to be definitely talking about technology there. So if anybody's wondering what, uh, what all this hype is about all this crazy new technology, <laughs> we'll, we'll be chatting about there. It's, it's a walleye topic, but uh, we fish for everything, and there's so many uh, things that apply. If, you, if you're a multi-species fisherman, a lot of things, if you're fishing for wa- you know, walleyes, it works for bass, it works for muskies, it works for panfish. So we'll, we'll talk through a number of those concepts and things that just work to catch fish, and we'll talk about how technology can be used to make you more efficient on the water as well. So go to tcwalleyes.com if you want more details on that meeting. Again, that's going to be in Bloomington this Thursday, February 1st. And then, of course, uh, there's a lot of ways to see what you're up to, Outdoor News, as well as anglingbuzz.com, uh, right? That's a great place to read what you've got going on. Yeah, Angling Buzz as well as Angling Edge. Our television shows are airing right now. You could catch those on Valley North, Outdoor Channel, Pursuit Channel in this area. So we've got uh, fresh shows coming out every week right now, so a lot of uh, though you're not in a boat right now, if you're in Minnesota, there's a lot of uh, a lot of good fishing content being kicked out by the fishing producers at this point in time. <laughs> you better believe it. Yeah, that time of year where you guys are working hard inside, doing a lot of video production, I'm sure. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining me. It's fun catching up. We need to get you on more frequently. You're a fountain of great angling information. Yeah, man, thanks for doing this, Rob. Appreciate everything. Well, thanks for all you do. It was good to see you last uh, Friday, and we'll, we'll be in touch. Take care. For sure. Thanks, Rob. Yep, Jeremy Smith from Linder Media, anglingedge.com uh, is uh, one of the many sites where you can see uh, see some of the content that uh, those folks are putting together. If you're into fishing, it doesn't get any better than that group. I think we're going to break. Uh, when we return, we're going to talk lake trout fishing a little bit, so don't go away. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Welcome back on this Sunday, January 28th, last Sunday of January 2024. Can you believe this month is almost in the rearview mirror? Hey, we've talked a lot about what a challenging ice fishing season it's been so far this winter, but there's one type of fish you can pursue through the hard water that's pretty much foolproof even during a challenging winter like this one. Uh, It's winter lake trout fishing, which is quite popular in northeastern Minnesota. It's a hike up there for the bulk of Minnesota's population. But I saw an incredible photo on social media uh, last weekend through one of my contacts at Sportsman for the Boundary Waters. I saw the photo. I said, we got to get that in outdoor news. So I I contacted a couple of people, and I eventually found the man in the photo. His name is Dan Steele from White Bear Lake, and he's got it. He caught a huge lake trout, a 39-incher, and he joins us now to talk a little bit about winter lake trout fishing. Dan, how you doing? Thanks for joining me for a segment. Here, I'm good to talk to you. Is that the biggest lake trout you've ever caught? 39 incher in that's a big lake trout anywhere. 
But it's one of the biggest I think I've seen come out of Minnesota waters. Tell us about that fish a little bit. Yeah, certainly one of the biggest. Actually, my biggest lake trout was 42 inches caught on the same lake last year, if you can believe that. Wow. Um, there, there's some big fish up there, but um, that fish was on trout opening day on, on Saturday, January 13th, and came on a set line on a dot, non-designated trout lake. Put up probably a 10 to 15-minute flight, a lot of violent runs in there. Uh, landed the fish, got a quick measurement at just a hair over 39 inches and got it released. It was pretty cold that day, so we didn't keep her out of the water for more than maybe 30 to 60 seconds. Oh, good. Yeah, we actually have two lake trout openers in this state, don't we? I believe it's a Jan 1 that you can start fishing lakes inside the Boundary Waters, and then this year it was January 13th on lakes outside the Boundary Waters. I believe both seasons run till the end of March. Will you be up there frequently? Uh, and you live in the Twin Cities area now, but you go up several times in winter, and will you fish it pretty much through the end of March, or, or is that the best bite early? I think there's a little bit of a spike early, and then there's a spike late. So I like to hit it really hard um, right on opener. I'll usually go over the first two or three weekends, and then I'll usually leave it alone for a little bit in February there. And it seems like the bite always picks up in March. If there's still safe ice, I love to go back up in March. seems like those fish are a little bit more aggressive, and they're willing to chase a little bit more. But I, I'll fish it as much as I can all the way through, but usually more towards the start right around opener and more towards the end in March if there's safe ice. I would think, yeah, you start to get a little melting. You start to get some oxygenated water hitting the lakes, and, and that probably you know, activates things a little bit, right? It activates some of the bait fish, activates their uh, their feeding, and, and probably makes for, for better fishing. So I can see why you get up there in, in late March also. Lake trout, a member of the trout and salmon family, obviously. I don't know if you know this, they're actually char. If we were going to be accurate with the name of those of that species, we'd probably call them lake char. Uh, yeah. They're not, not a true trout. But what got you into lake trout fishing? You're originally from White Bear Lake. You were telling me off air. You went up to UMD. Uh, a lot of folks from the young people from the Twin Cities like to go to that college. So they're so close to all the, the great outdoor experiences up there. Was that uh, one reason you went to Duluth for school? Certainly. I toured a number of schools. And as soon as I toured UMD and realized how many outdoor opportunities were around the school, I was all in. Before going to UMD, I'd never caught a trout before. Wow. I went steelhead fishing on the North Shore, caught my first steelhead on the Knife River, and I was hooked from there. I had a friend telling me that lake trout fight even harder than steelhead. And after fighting a steelhead for five minutes or so and landing that, I was all in on the lake trout deal. I wanted to try that out. And we fired up the Gunflint Trail with a couple friends and ended up tying into a few lake trout. And I loved it right away. I, I couldn't compare it to any other fishing, the fight they put up. It's nothing like a walleye, perch, northern pike, um, what you'll see in most other lakes in Minnesota. So w once I started fishing lake trout, I just kind of went down that rabbit hole and, and fell in love. I got to ask you, once uh, the open water season gets going, do you get out and do you still do the steelhead thing uh, on the North Shore streams? I do. I love it. I'll usually make, a, make one or two trips up the North Shore every spring mm -hmm. to do some steelheading and then mm -hmm. transition back to lake trout in the summer months. Yeah, I did that a number of times with Sean Parrish, who sadly passed away last year. He and I even got up into Canada three or four times uh, to, to fish bigger water up there in Canada for, for steelhead and, and some of the other trout and salmon species that worked their way up those tributaries. But let's stick to uh, Minnesota lake trout. Do you know many people who get out and participate in this? Do you feel like you're usually out there by yourself or, you know, you and maybe your, your fishing buddies? Or is it uh, more popular than maybe I'm, I'm giving it credit for? I think lately there's been an uptick in the popularity of it. I think with the newer YouTubers coming out with these lake trail mm -hmm. videos, it sparked a big interest in the younger 
generations, which is, it's nice to see. It's good to see younger generations getting more into it. But I will say when I first started lake trout fishing, some of these lakes are, I would say most of these lakes, I was all alone. And these days in the past couple of years, I've seen a big uptick in popularity of guys coming out, guys my age coming out there. So it's good to see. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. I am Rob Dreesline, and we are talking about winter lake trout fishing with a young man named Dan Steele who caught a massive, massive fish. You can see the picture of this fish on the front cover of this week's Outdoor News. 39-inch catch-and-release lake trout uh, on a lake off the Gunflint Trail. We won't ask Dan for anything more specific than that. Uh, is that uh, tend to be the area of the Boundary Waters you fish is, is off the Gunflint, or do you get over? Is there much for lake trout fishing around that Ely side? Yeah, um, actually, there's one really good lake. I like Snowbank a lot. I've spent a lot of time out there. there there's some big fish in there. It seems like that's some big of water. Yeah, big, big water, big mm-hmm. fish. Um, it's nice because you can kind of bop around and do a few different species on Snowbank. But I, I think the better lake trout fishing you're going to find is going to be on the Gunflint Trail. So let's talk tactics a little bit. Uh, if you're if you're okay sharing uh, some of your <laughs> some of your tips and tricks, how do you pursue lake trout in the winter? I mean, it, does it change from January to March? Are the fish fairly deep right now, or are they are they more shallow than I might expect? You know, that, that's a complicated thing about lake trout. Is in the winter they'll go wherever they want. You know, I've found them between 200 feet of water and 20 feet of water. So a lot of times you're looking for them, but most of the time on these Canadian Shield style lakes off the Gunflint Trail, you're usually going to find them on some of these humps and reefs this time of year. You know, I really try to focus on a hump that'll come up to 30 feet or coming up to 40 feet with, you know, at least 60 feet on all sides around it. Wow. Like sharp breaks from 40 feet down to 80 feet. I like fishing right on that break if you can find that. Some guys like using Navionics. Surprisingly, there is some really good Navionics data on some of those Gunflint Lakes that you can use to your advantage. And I also really like finding those flats. Sometimes those bigger fish will come up on 30-foot flats out of, you know, closer to the deep water, closer to 60-plus feet of water, and they're up there just cruising looking for bait fish. And do you have like some portable electronics that that you're using? It sounds like you must. I mean, if you're if you're targeting them in those kind of specific areas, you got some battery power, a battery powered Vexilar or something that you carry in with you. Certainly, I'll usually bring a Vexilar up. Um, it, it's a lot of hard work if you're in the boundary waters and you're using a hand auger trying to find spot on oh, yeah. the spot, as you can imagine. Um, but recently, I started using Live Scope, which which cuts out a lot of time in, in finding spot on the spot <laughs> fish. Yeah, the old forward-facing sonar. We've talked a lot about that on uh, on this broadcast. Now we should point out, I asked you off here, do you keep a few for the frying pan? You do keep some small ones, huh? Yeah, I, I like to keep a couple between 20 and 25 inches. I'll usually only keep one a day if I'm up there, and, and it's usually my dinner that day as well. So you keep a, a small one. I, now, I'll be honest. I've never been a big lake trout guy in terms of eating them. I like whitefish a lot, but I'm just not a big lake trout guy. Any tips for uh, for cooking them? Because other people say, Rob, you're out to lunch, man. You, you just don't appreciate good table fare from uh, from our cold lakes in Minnesota. Any tips for uh, on, on cooking them? Yeah, I think some of these uh, inland lake trout get a bad rep from the Lake Superior lake trout. Uh, I think some of the lake tr- Lake Superior lake trout, there's four different strains, and some of those strains aren't as good to eat, but the inland lake trout are delicious. I promise you, Rob, if you tried one with some lemon pepper on it over a fire skillet, you I would change your mind. You can't beat it, huh? Well, I got to ask, have you been out on Lake Superior? Do you uh, Have you fished any of the lakers out there? There's a lot swimming in that big body of water, aren't there? Certainly. I love going up there, especially in, in the late summer months. You know, 
if you can get out there in late August and do some jigging, it's a lot of fun. We do troll for them in the summer months, but it seems like those better eating ones are definitely in the inland lakes. Any specific lures or, or jigging tactics that you'd recommend? Certainly. I, and I, I don't stick to one specific bait. I like to try a lot of different stuff, but it seems like if you're up in the boundary waters and you're exploring new water, I love a rattle bait. They will call fish in from a long distance away. They make a lot of noise, a lot of vibration in the water. Those tend to be more of search baits. A rattle bait or jigging bait is going to be great for that. If you're on a spot that you believe has lake trout, Tubes are great. Hair jigs are great. Spoons are great. A small three to four inch swim bait imitating a smelt are also really good. Do you tip it with any live bait? Do you use any live bait when you're fishing Lakers? You know, it, it depends. You got to follow the Minnesota DNR regulations. So if you're in a non-designated trout lake, you're allowed to use live bait as long as it's from a VHA free certified body of water. Gotcha. In that case, I'll usually bring up some set lines, whether that's a tip up or an iFish Pro. And I love to get a dead bait out there if it's legal. And if you're on a non-designated trout lake, okay. that second line can help your can help you out significantly, can turn a bad day into a great day. So if you have the ability to run a second line, I highly recommend folks get that out there and give yourself that extra chance. And you bring up a good point. There's a lot of real specific rules and regulations regarding fishing any trout species anywhere in Minnesota. You got to abide by that. You got to buy a trout stamp too. So it's nice to uh, hear a young guy like you really uh, dotting his I's and crossing his T's on those regulations because they are quite specific. Hey, uh, if folks want to see more from you, do you you post some of your uh, photos on Instagram or was I just lucky that Sportsman for the Bounty Waters happened to post that one? Usually I share most of my photos on my Instagram. Um, if you want to search Dan Steele, you should find me. I am public. I will share some ticks and, and tips on there. I tie a lot of my own hair jigs. I'll usually share some, some smaller baits and, and things and patterns I've noticed in the past. But if you want to follow me on there and reach out with any questions you have, I would be happy to answer them. Well, Dan, thanks a lot for joining us. This was a fun segment. I'm glad to see there's guys still trekking into the, the boundary waters and, and some of those adjacent water bodies to try to catch uh, some big lake trout, kind of a unique species that I think we maybe take for granted here in Minnesota. And, hey, we should point out, ice conditions up there, pretty decent compared to the rest of the state? Pretty decent. You know, two weeks before trout opener, is still open water, but things froze up really nicely. On opening day, I saw, I saw anywhere between 9 to 12 inches on some of the lakes. And just this past weekend, I noticed 12 to 14 on some of the similar lakes. As things are get... certainly shaping up to be a good year. Good. All right. Well, one more time, Dan, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, have a great rest of your winter. We'll stay in touch with you and talk to you again sometime. Perfect. Thanks, Rob. Yep. Dan Steele, young man from White Bear Lake, who caught himself a massive lake trout uh, earlier this month. Let's break. We will have more of the broadcast after these messages. Final segment, everybody, of this week's broadcast of WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Dreesline. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, quick uh, news update before we go. I've mentioned uh, the past couple weeks uh, some swans got poached out in Stevens County out in western Minnesota. Uh, the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service being extremely cryptic about the amount of information they would release on the story. They wouldn't even tell us what species they were early on. Apparently, these birds taken in mid-December. We didn't get the report until almost mid-January. Uh, but this past week, the agency, the federal agency, providing a few additional details on the case. Uh, one, uh, I got one email from uh, one of their public information officers on Tuesday, another one on this past Thursday, the 25th. Basically, bottom line, they said there were 15 swans total, 15 dead swans, 
both species, both native species were represented, some trumpeter swans and the migratory tundra swans, which I thought was kind of interesting. You don't necessarily think of them uh, mingling together, but I guess there must have been some tundras out in western Minnesota. I associate them more with being on the the Mississippi River. So whoever is responsible for this, it was on a property. uh, They say it was near the intersection of 260th Street and 520th Avenue near the southwest corner of the Lamprick Wildlife Production Waterfall production, that's like 200, 250 acres, something like that, a WPA out there, part of the Morris Wetland Management District. So, again, they're still looking for information. If you know any details about this, uh, the agency encouraging you to contact the special agent in the case, Andrew Daber, Andrew underscore Daber, D-A-I-B-E-R, at FWS. .gov. So uh, some more details in that case. Maybe we'll find out some more. They are protected species and we're always looking to bust poachers here on this pro- on this program. We don't like poachers. Hey, with that, everybody, I appreciate you joining me. Thank you to the guests. Thank you to the listeners. Everybody, have yourself a great week out of doors. I am Rob Dreeson, and I'm signing off for WCCO Outdoors.